send people to hell. That's the objection that we're considering today. So if you're new, let me just catch you up on what we're doing. We're in a series called Unbelievable, and for eight weeks what we're doing is we're trying to address some of the common objections to Christianity, some of the hard questions that make believing in Christianity and coming to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ so hard. And so we want to address these hard questions as honestly, as humbly, and as biblically as we can. And just as a reminder to you, as you're listening today, if you've got a question that you'd like to perhaps ask anonymously, we've got a number on the screen that you can text in, and we'll address that question through our website this week. If you'd like to talk with us afterwards, we'd be more than glad to do that with you. If you'd like to talk with other folks, we've got some conversations that are happening, dialogues this week itself, and you can talk to Pastor Binu about how you can participate in that as well. But again, the question that we're considering this morning is, how can a loving God send people to hell? An old Scottish minister named Robert Murray McShane was talking to a pastor friend of his on a Monday morning, and he asked his pastor friend what he had preached on the day before. And his friend told him, I preached on the judgment of God and of hell. And Robert Murray McShane responded back by saying, then I hope you did it with tears in your eyes. Out of all the questions we're considering in this series, I want you to hear this one in particular is not a matter of intellectual debate. This is not a battle of the wits. My goal in this day is not somehow to win the argument and convince you of the existence of hell. My task is much greater. My task is not to convince you of the existence of hell as much as to warn you and plead with you that you might not go there. My task is no more to defend hell as if that were the glorious joy of a preacher as much as a doctor's task is to defend the existence of cancer. No, his task, his joy is to come into the room and tell you of a cure. So it is even for me today. The old preacher's words are wise and right. If you're going to speak on hell, you should do so having had your eyes moist with tears, having heart, had your heart rent by this truth. And I can tell you for me this week, I have been wrecked and ruined in this study. In fact, so much of my prayer has been, I wish, I still have more questions perhaps than answers, but I wish so badly that I could pull you all in to this past week of hours of thought on this so that the weight of this thing might too sit on your heart and soul as well. We do not think of these things too much or too often or too deeply. We don't think of them deeply enough. And so my hope is, my prayer for you is that you would let the Holy Spirit turn this thing over and over in your mind and you would consider the weight and reality of it so that it would press down on your heart as well. So the path I want us to follow this morning is this. First, I want to describe for you and show you what the Bible says about hell. What does the scriptures teach about hell? And then second, having considered that, I want to suggest to you that the doctrine of hell actually helps us to see the love of God more, not less. Right? And that's our question. How can a loving God send people to hell? And as counterintuitive as it may be, I want to contend to you that keeping the doctrine of hell helps us to see the love of God more, not less. And then I want us to just end with some thoughts or questions for you as you go from here. Okay? 
What does the Bible say about hell? How does it show us the love of God more, not less? And what might we do as we go from here? Let me lead us first in a moment of prayer so that we can ask for God's help. Father, we ask now that you would come and aid us by your Holy Spirit. We are utterly dependent upon you. Right now, we cannot afford to get these things wrong. My mouth can't afford to get it wrong. Our ears and hearts can't afford to understand this wrong. Too much is at stake. And so we pray that you would help us to hug tightly to reality as shown in your word and that the Spirit himself might overcome error. Error in what I might say, error in what we might hear or believe, that we might be led to truth and being led to truth We might be led to Jesus where there is joy and life eternal. 10 billion years from now, all of us in this room will still be. Show us today where we will be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What does the Bible say about hell? Well, let's start by saying this. What we can all agree on is that we will die, right? At least at that point, there's no disagreement. We don't think often of it. We avoid it as much as possible. But the reality, and you should let this sink into your heart and mind for one second, is you will die. If you could hover over that box and imagine for a moment, you will be in a box. Loved ones will be around. We will die, all of us. At at that point, there's no disagreement. There's no debate. The conversation begins when we ask, and then what? When the lights go out, then what? What happens? The naturalist or the atheist, our friends, will come and tell us when the lights go out, that's just it, the lights go out. We hope you enjoyed the ride, but that's it. Whatever this life amounted to for you, that's what it amounted to for you. If you were lucky enough to have been born to the right parents, inherited the right genes, if your DNA danced the right way and the DNA around you danced the right way, then hopefully you had a good life. Hopefully this decade or five or six of them was good to you. If, however, you were unfortunate enough to have been born in the wrong circumstances or with the wrong parents or in the wrong environment or you didn't inherit good DNA, then that's just the luck of the draw for you. So it is. We apologize, but that's it. Whatever you come to, whatever you experience in this 10, 20, 80 years is all there is. For good if you're lucky, for bad if you're not. Now the naturalist and atheist himself will tell us that this is psychologically devastating to consider. This brief moment is it. The reincarnationist will come and tell us when the lights go out, they go back on again in this life because you come back. And you come back either higher or lower, depending on your moral performance. You might come back a prince. You might come back a pig. It sort of depends. It depends on how you performed. And you're sort of in this endless cycle, atoning for previous actions until somehow maybe you break out of the cycle. And if you do, there's no more you left. You're sort of absolved or or dissolved, absorbed into one being. It's the end of your personality, the end of your personhood. You no longer exist. Or the universalist friend of ours will come and say, when the lights go off, they go back on for everyone. Because God gives a giant pass to everybody. And we're all admitted into heaven. Everybody spends eternity with God. God sort of winks at the whole world and says, you're all fine. 
So that means the six million Jews who died in the Holocaust and Hitler who killed them, the 20 million who died in Russia and Stalin who destroyed them, all spend eternity in the same place and God essentially says, it's okay, I'm not that mad. And we could keep going and over and against these, Christianity comes because the scriptures come and teach that when the lights go out, all of us who have taken breath, all human beings who have ever lived, will stand before God and then go to one of two eternal places. We will either spend eternity with God in heaven or spend eternity away from God in hell. That is that all of us will either be in heaven, the place of eternal bliss for those who are in Christ, or we will spend eternity in hell, the place of eternal torment for those who are in sin. Now you need to hear that again, and you need to fix that in your mind, and you need to notice what we said and what we didn't say. We didn't say what most of us and most of our city and most of our culture thinks, which is that heaven is the place for good people, and hell is the place for bad people, right? The categories are the good people go to heaven, the bad people go to hell. You know, 70% of people in America believe in hell. Less than 1% think they're going there because we've all got this idea the good people go to hell, and of course we're good people. The bad people go to heaven, and the bad people go to hell. Now hear this. Those are not categories you find in the scriptures. The scriptures say instead there's two categories of people. There's sinners who are in Christ, and there are sinners who are in sin. Those are the only two categories. So it's sinners that are going to go to heaven, and it's sinners that are going to go to hell. The sinners who are in Christ, that is, they've turned from their sins, they've repented of their sins, they've thrown themselves into Christ, they who are in Christ will spend eternity in eternal bliss with God in heaven. And those who are still in sin... Spend eternity in hell. So then hell is the place of eternal torment for those who are in sin. That is those who have not repented, the impenitent, the unrepentant, those who have not turned from their sin to Christ. Hell is the eternal place of torment for those who are in sin. Now, It might surprise you to know that much of the data we have on hell, most of the teaching in the scriptures about hell, come from Jesus. You should hear that. It might surprise you to know that Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. More than the prophets, who seemed angry all the time. More than the apostles. More than, some scholars say, all the biblical authors combined. Jesus speaks of hell. More than them all. And, and you got to hear that again. Jesus, the loving Lord, who taught us to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and forgive seven times 70 a day, that Jesus tells us that he is the judge at the end of time before which all humanity will sa- stand, sending some to heaven and some to hell. And so we wrestle with that because we want to ask, wait, I, I thought Jesus was loving and that's the question, right? That's the, that's the rub. That's what we're trying to address today. How can God, who is loving and merciful and gracious, how can the loving Lord Jesus himself be also at the same time a God who has anger and judgment and wrath 
and sentences and judges people to hell. How can you reconcile those two? How can God be loving and Jesus be full of anger and wrath? Now, one answer, to put it plainly and simply, is this. That anger is not opposed to love, but is often the result of love. Hear that again. Anger is not something that is somehow mutually exclusive from love or a contradiction with love, but rather is sometimes the result of love. Look, you love your parents. You love your spouse. You love your child. You love your brother, your sister, your dearest friend. You love them. And when you see something or someone that is going to harm the one you love, you rightly feel anger. And that anger is birthed not because of hatred. It's actually birthed because of love. If you stood by while something destroys someone you love, that would be utter indifference. That would be the exact opposite of love. Anger is produced sometimes because you love. An author named Becky Pipper puts it like this. Listen to what she says. She says, think how we feel when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. And then consider this with God. God's wrath, then, is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. You hear what she's saying? I think she's right. What she's saying is that God is not this hot-tempered being. This capricious, whimsical being who sometimes has these fits of rage that can't be controlled. But rather, God has this settled, smoldering opposition to the very things that destroys the ones he loves. It's right that God hates human trafficking. It's right that God abhors murder. It's right that God despises racism and self-centeredness and selfishness and the various tumors and cancers of sin that are eating out the insides of the human race he loves with all his heart. It is right and loving for God to be that way. So then, when God hates sin or judges sinners, it does not make him less loving. It just clues you in to the fact that God is more than loving. Meaning he's, he's not less than love, but he's also more than love. He's also just. He's also holy. If tomorrow's inquirer said that all the judges in Philadelphia have thrown open the jails and are letting murderers and rapists and thieves go because they're loving, none of us would go, that is so loving. If anything, we would say that, that may be loving, but we also wish they were just. God is love, but he's also just, he's also holy, he's not less than love, but he is more than love. And so the scriptures teach that hell is the just judgment of God for sinners who are in sin. So then what does Jesus teach about hell? How does he describe hell? What is hell like? And I want you to hear this because this is thick, but we need to walk through it. Jesus uses some of the most vivid and blood-curdling descriptions of hell you could imagine. 
And again, I would commend you to turn these over in your mind so that the full weight of them rests on your heart because if you let it rest on your heart, your heart will be pressed to the point of breaking. Jesus uses some of the most vivid and horrid descriptions of hell so that we might hear and see the horror of this reality. How does Jesus describe hell? So let me consider this with you for a moment. For example, Jesus uses perhaps more than any other description of hell. He describes hell as this place of fiery agony. Over and over and over again, the scriptures teach of hell as this place of fiery agony. This place of uh, a fiery furnace. It's used over and over more than any other description to describe what hell is like. Listen to Mark 9 verses 43 to 48. Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus speaking hyperbolically. He's making an extreme point. His point isn't to radically amputate limbs because even blind men lust and sin in their hearts. His point is rather to say it would be better for you to be mutilated and maimed and have no limbs than for you to spend one moment in the fiery agony of hell. It'd be better than than for you to go to the fiery furnace of hell over and over again. The scriptures talk of this as a lake of fire, an eternal fire, an unquenching fire, a fire which cannot be quenched. Twenty-seven times hell is described that way. Jesus goes on to describe hell also as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll hear that over and over and over again. Listen to Matthew 13, 41 and 42. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you hear that sentence over and over again. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You consider that. Weeping. God, Jesus, is describing that the soul in hell weeps for eternity. Weeps. No rest, no comfort, no consolation. This torment, the soul in hell now resigned to its eternal fate. Knowing there is no rescue, no second chance, no more opportunity. And, and perhaps to see this, you, you ought to contrast it with what God describes heaven to be like. Those of you who are in Christ through no work of your own, who have repented of your sins, who are in Christ, do you know that the Bible speaks of heaven to you as this place of eternal bliss? A place where Revelation at the end of the Bible says, a place where God himself will wipe away every tear from your eye. And there'll be no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain, and no more death. Tears will never again flow. 
And then you contrast that with the awful reality of hell where the very opposite, tears will forever flow with no reprieve. They will never relent. Tears with no end, crying with no ceasing, mourning that never stops, pain that never lessens. The soul in anguish with no hand to wipe the eye, no shoulder to cry on, no community to support you. The soul that realizes its eternal fate and begins to weep. Or he then describes it also as a, it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth, this term that means that on the one hand, it means, it's got two meanings. On the one hand, it means to denote extreme anguish and utter despair. So the grinding of the teeth that comes from such sorrow and such suffering, that extreme anguish and utter despair. But this phrase is used in other parts of the Bible also, this grinding of teeth in a different way. It's sort of this grinding of teeth, this gnashing of teeth, as is to suggest a, a sort of snarling, a, a growling, and almost biting. For example, in the Old Testament, the enemies of God are as described as looking at the innocent and gnashing their teeth. And, and if you clench your jaw, you can sort of picture, you almost expect your fist to come. This, this gnashing of the teeth. It's the same root word that's used in Acts 7, in this scene where a man named Stephen is being martyred. He's the first one killed for Jesus Christ. And it's the scene in Acts 7 where he preaches this long sermon. And he's commending them to faith in Jesus Christ. And towards the end of the sermon, he says, Why do you consistently resist the Holy Spirit? Why are you so hard-hearted? Why are you so stubborn? Why will you not listen to this invitation? Why will you turn a deaf ear over and over and over again? And it says the crowd was so angry, they grabbed rocks, and before they hurled them at his head to stone him to death, listen to what it says in Acts 7, 54. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. That's gnashing of teeth. And so the picture is to suggest that the soul that is in heaven, in, weep, in hell, in weeping and eternal torment, is all the while still gnashing its teeth in rebellion against God. That even there, in that place, in that fate, it still does not repent. It still does not bow the knee in love or submission to God. In the passage that Mike read for us about the rich, young, rich man and Lazarus, if you notice the description of the rich man in torment in hell, if you read it again, you'll realize fundamentally the guy doesn't change. He's in torment. He's in agony and anguish, and yet his character, his identity is still the same. He still sees Lazarus, the poor beggar, as his errand boy. Do you notice that? He's not begging God, would you get me out of here? I'm sorry for my sins. You don't hear a word of repentance. Not a word of remorse, not a word of, I'm sorry that I forsook you, God. What you hear is, would you send, would you fetch Lazarus to grab some water to dip it on my tongue so I can have relief here? Or would you fetch Lazarus so that he can go back and tell my brothers so that they might not end up here? His fundamental character hasn't changed. No repentance, no remorse. In fact, there's even a subtle hint that he thinks this is all God's fault. He says, would you send Lazarus 
so that if someone comes back from the dead, finally my brothers would believe. As if to say what? If God had just provided sufficient proof, I wouldn't be here. To which Abraham says, listen, even if someone comes from the dead, if they do not believe the word, nothing will convince them. It's still sort of this blame shifting. It's still this sort of self-centeredness. The idea is that the soul in hell is given over to its self-centeredness, to its selfishness for all eternity. I mean, if, you, if you're an angry person, and you're angry at 10, and you're angry at 15, and 50, and 85, and, and that anger sort of swells and grows, imagine how angry you'd be at 500 or five million, or five billion. And the idea is God essentially lets sinners go in their sin. Romans 1 is saying, in wrath, God says, have it your way. Go at it. Until that sin so consumes you that there's barely any of you left. The soul in hell is still gnashing its teeth. I heard this week that, that Stalin, when he was dying on his deathbed, it said that with his last breath, he lifted his head, he put his fist to the heavens, and he fell back and he was gone. So as to one more time, that to God. And hell is essentially that fist given over to itself for all eternity. Listen to this quote by a man named Russell Moore. He says this. He says, The sinner in hell does not become morally neutral upon his sentence to hell. We must not imagine the damned sinner displaying gospel repentance and longing for the presence of Christ. The damned indeed are longing for an escape from punishment, but they are not new creations. They do not in hell love the Lord their God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Instead, they are now handed over to the full display of their natures, apart from grace, natures that are satanic. Thus, the condemnation continues forever and ever and ever, with no end in view, either for the sin or the punishment thereof. Essentially, God says, have it your way, and gives the sinner over with no grace to pull them back, no mercy to restrain them. So that this is a place of unending weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other places, Jesus describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a place of separation, a place of destruction. Think of that for a second. Utter darkness. I mean, we can't even imagine it because we live in a world where the sun shines every morning. And even if we're found in the dark, we strain our eyes to see because eventually there's a flicker of light somewhere or morning will come. But what of a reality where it is always night and always dark, you can't see in front of your face, and, and morning is never coming. Or separation. If you've bought into the foolish character that Hell is some kind of frat party where now you're finally away from God and you and your buddies can drink and enjoy forever. Is there more of a monument to the folly of our thinking than that? The scriptures say that you are in utter separation. There is no community, no society. There is your anguishing soul left to your sin for yourself for all eternity. 
One parable describes hell almost as this cube with a mirror on every side. And you're in this cube and you get to stare at yourself forever. Or a place, Jesus says, of destruction. When we hear that, some have suggested maybe what happens is finally the soul just stops. It's just, it's destroyed, right? If something's destroyed, maybe it just ceases to exist. And so this is called something called annihilationism. It's the idea that maybe after some time of torment, at least the soul just stops being. And they're annihilated, they're destroyed. And while even that would be preferable, it's not what the scriptures teach. It'd be preferable. Jesus in one place say it'd be better if that person weren't born than to be in hell. And yet the scriptures teach this doesn't end. By destroyed, here's, here's the idea. It's like if you've seen a car that's been wrecked, just totaled, smashed in at every place. It's not that it ceases to be, it's that it's destroyed. It's no longer what it was made for. It, it does, it's, it's destroyed beyond the point of recognition. It's utterly ruined. So the soul that was created in the image and likeness of God, now abandoned to sin, with the full wrath of God, is left to be destroyed. Destroyed beyond recognition. Now hear this, we could keep going, but at this point, one of the questions that sort of surfaces is, is this stuff all real? Or at least maybe even a, a connected question is, is this literal? Right? Are, are we literally talking about a, a place of flames and fire and torture and darkness and agony and all the rest? I don't know. In fact, I'll tell you, I've read enough commentators this week to say that there are many who think that this is figurative. That maybe it's not literally this way. But here's what I would warn you against. Don't hear that and go, thank goodness. At least it won't be that bad. No, it will be worse. If it's not literal, it will be worse. You know why? How do metaphors work? How does figurative language work? You use figurative language when the reality you're trying to describe is so immense, words won't do. That's when you grab a metaphor. You grab a metaphor when the reality is much deeper still than anything human language has words for. That's when you use a metaphor. Right? So when the Bible uses that positively and says, God is a lion, we don't go less. We go, that means it's more. It means that God is so majestic, so powerful, so awesome in his might, we don't even have words for it, so the lion is the best we can do. When it says the word of God is sweet as honey, we don't stop short. We go deeper to say it's so good you can't describe it. Honey's the best we can do. So then, how awful, friends, is this reality if words like unending fire, unquenchable torment, utter darkness, destruction, separation are the words to describe this reality because language won't do. How awful is this? And literal or figurative, the reality is this is eternal. And I think maybe more than anything else, when you let that one sit on your heart, 
that the soul in hell is in hell for eternity. That means 10 billion years after it's been tortured and tormented and suffered and the smoke of its torment rises day and night, no rest, no end in sight, 10 billion years in, it will not have served one second of its sentence. I mean, the only hope for a, a man who has been sentenced is the hope that, okay, one year's done, a few more left. Ten years done, a few more left. One billion years in, and it won't have taken a second off your sentence. Unending and eternal in its agony, in its torment, in its reality, as the wrath of God is unleashed for all time. At this point, we would go, this seems so horrid, we'd be right. This seems so unfair, we'd be wrong. It seems so unfair. How is eternal punishment fair? We'd want to say, look, if anything, these are sins or crimes or offenses committed in a finite life. How can infinite punishment be justice for sins committed in a finite life? But here's the thing, you and I already know. Our punishment is not just for what we do, but who we do it against. I could punch you in the mouth, I'd get in trouble. What if I punched a cop in the mouth? What if I punched the president in the mouth? You hear that? You know it's not just the action, it's the dignity of the person who you offend. I'd be in much more trouble with each. So what happens when you offend the eternal God who existed before there was you? Right? We know that. If I wrong you, there's some sort of penalty for that. What if I wrong the country, a sovereign nation? All nations have always treated with treason in the same sort of way. If you commit treason against a sovereign nation, you're either put to death or at the very least you're exiled Right? You betrayed this country, you can't come back. You're exiled for the rest of your life. What if you commit cosmic treason? What if you commit cosmic treason against an eternal God? You're exiled eternally. A.W. Pink said it like this, when we in our flesh want to say this is not fair, listen to this. He says, who are we to pass judgment on the justice of the decision of the all-wise? Who are we to say what is consistent or inconsistent with God's righteousness? Sin has so enfeebled our power of righteous judgment, so darkened our understanding, so dulled our conscience, so perverted our wills, so corrupted our hearts that we are quite incompetent to decide. We are ourselves so infected and affected by sin that we are altogether incapable of estimating its due merits. Imagine a company of criminals passing judgment on the equity and goodness of the law which had condemned them. Pink is saying, you've been affected to the core with this. You're stubborn, you're dark, you're proud, you're sinful. You have no ability to rise above this and judge the judgments of God. But listen, if our aim this morning is simply to defend the existence of hell, then our aim is far too low and far too base and unworthy an enterprise. The point is not to simply present you with the reality of hell. It's like this. Richard Brooks said this. Hell is not in the Bible for us to debate it or to reject it. It is there so that we might escape from it. 
Why is this talked about so often in the Bible? Why did Jesus speak about it more than anyone else? Some scholars say there's nearly 200 references to this. You know why? Because it's as if you're driving down the road and there's a great pit in front of you and the Bible has given you 200 signs one mile apart along the way saying, Stop! Turn! You're headed for destruction. Turn today around. If you continue, you will fall. It will be the end. Over and over and over again. Ten billion years from now, what I said will be true. And so the Bible is pleading with you, warning you, turn, turn, turn today. Listen to me. If the Holy Spirit of God is actually doing something in your heart, then don't resist the Holy Spirit. Don't imagine you have tomorrow. Why would your heart be any softer tomorrow than it is today? If you dismiss this today, why would you imagine your heart would be more ready to receive it tomorrow? The Bible's not as optimistic about the condition of your heart. And so the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time for you to turn to God. Turn. If you are not in Christ, Turn to Christ today. Repent of your every sin and turn to him. But here's the thing. Heaven is not just for those who are afraid of hell. No one ever goes to heaven because they're afraid of hell. You go to heaven for those who love God. It's not the fear of hell that brings you to heaven. It's the love of God. Because otherwise, hear me, all you'll do is you'll now start grabbing religion and morality and church and Bible and obedience as another way to sort of make your bets sure. God becomes nothing but divine insurance for you. And in the end, when you do that, all you're doing is you're still using God for you. It's... Religion just still becomes a disguise for your self-centeredness and selfishness, which is why the Lord warns, which is why Jesus says, the day is coming when many will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name, and we did that in your name, and here's the work I did in your name, and I did that for you, and the Lord will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, because in reality, you never knew me. If God becomes something you add on to your life now because of fear of hell, then you'll hear, Lord, Lord, I never knew you, he'll say. So then it's not fear of hell that brings anyone to heaven. It's love for God. Now, what on earth can give your heart love for God? What on earth has the power to actually get inside and transform your heart, which right now is self-centered and thinking, okay, if there's a way to get out of hell, I'll take that, but now is actually able to tra change, transform the very contours of your heart that it might actually beat with love for this God? What might make you to actually love God? And here's the thing. As counterintuitive as it might be, the reality of hell, rather than showing us how little God loves, shows us how much he loves. Rather than it being evidence that there can't be a loving God who sends people to hell, it actually shows us the depths of his love. It's when you keep hell in its proper place that you begin to realize how much God actually loves you. 
Hear that again. As counterintuitive as this might be, hell has the ability to powerfully point us to the love of God and see it more, not less. See why? Once you realize what the just punishment for your sins are, not the bad guy, not the famous sinner, your sin. Once you realize that your fate should have been being cast into the outer darkness, separated from God, in fiery agony for all eternity, once you begin to see that and you couple that with what Jesus did for you, you begin to grow in your heart with an awareness of God's love for you so that it can transform your heart to love God. Let me give you an example. One preacher said it like this. He said, imagine a friend comes to your house and then later tells you, you know, you weren't home and so a bill came and I paid your bill for you. How would you respond to your friend? And the preacher said, well, it depends. I need to know how much he paid in order for me to know how to respond. If I forgot to put a stamp on the mail and he paid 49 cents, I'd say thanks so much. But what if he paid my mortgage in its entirety? What if he paid off all my college loans? What if, what if there was back taxes for years, decades, and he paid the whole thing? What, what if there were medical bills in the hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands, and he paid the whole thing? I, I'd need to know what it cost him. I'd need to know that so that I know how to respond, whether I should shake his hand or whether I should fall down and kiss his feet. He says, until you know how much it cost, you'll never know how much he loved you'll never know what your response should be. Do you know what it cost God to love you? Hell. Do you know what he paid to have you? Hell. He had hell to pay for you. Jesus had hell to pay to get you. Hear this with me. What is hell? Hell is torment, it's suffering, it's weeping, it's sorrow. Then consider this, Isaiah 53, verse 3 to 5, says of Jesus, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Hell is torment, sorrow, suffering. This is what Jesus endured. What is hell? Hell is being cast into darkness, we said. Listen to Luke 23, verse 44 and 45, that as Jesus hung on the cross, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light fa failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It's as if when Jesus was on the cross, cosmic judgment was taking place so that God blotted out the sun. And the light of the world came into the world and was covered with darkness for you. What is hell? Think of the rich man saying in the story, 
Oh, that Lazarus would dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. And then you hear Jesus scream from the cross, I thirst. What is hell? It's being destroyed beyond recognition. Ruined to the point you can't realize what it once was. And then listen to Isaiah 52 verse 14 as it prophesies of Jesus and says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That when they were done with Jesus, he was so ruined, disfigured, and destroyed, you couldn't even realize he was human anymore. That when they finished flogging him and the skin drooped like ribbons, you couldn't even see him because he was utterly destroyed for you. What is hell? Hell is being separated from God. It's being cast out. It's being forsaken. And you put that together with Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We want to go, how does a few hours on a Friday equal the torment of hell? You have no idea We have no idea the depth of suffering of what it meant for the eternal God who had existed from eternity past in bliss from with his father to hear his father cast him out. To have his father disown him, reject him, be separated from eternity, the triune God broken. Right? As, the, as the depth of relationship is close, so we feel pain. Right? If a stranger hurts me, it hurts, but I'll get over it. If my wife betrays me, oh, the pain is infinitely more. Then what is the pain of the eternal Son of God who had forever sat in the presence of his joyful Father to now have his Father turn away? So that he screams like a child left alone in this world who hates him. Why have you forsaken me? What is hell? It's the wrath of God being unleashed without restraint, without pity, without mercy, and without limit. It's the wrath of God unleashed in that kind of way. Romans tells us that our sin is being stored up. It's as if each of our sins are like drops that add up to this great bank of water behind a dam. And our sin is just storing up more and more of God's wrath behind this dam. With with it being opened, it's going to fly out with great fury. And our sin is adding to this wrath. And it's as if God throws open this dam. And the wrath comes pouring in and just it's the moment where it should swallow us, destroy us, and we should drown in it. Jesus stands in our place and drinks in the wrath of God till its last drop. That's what Jesus did for you. He stood in the way so that you would be shielded in him so that those who are in Christ are shielded from the wrath of God. It's now gone. If you're in Christ, it's gone. There's no more wrath. Jesus drank it all for you. This 
is God's statement on the horror of our sin. You want to know how bad your sin is? It's not eternity in hell. God's greatest statement of the horror of hell is his son dead on the cross. God is essentially saying to us, you want to know how bad this is? I'll die. Will that convince you? How about I die? Eternal God, who is the source of life, says, I'll die. And maybe that will convince you how awful sin is. And here's the, the great irony. A pastor named Tim Keller said it this way. He said, if you take out judgment and wrath and the cross and hell, because all of that is just too primitive. You're much more sophisticated than that. You don't believe in a God of judgment and wrath. No, you say, my God is a God of love. There's no wrath. There's no judgment. There's none of this. My God is a God of love. Tim Keller says, you know what he asks in response? What did it cost your God to love you? What did it cost your God to love you? Because if your God is just love, you might have some tingly feelings. You might be inspired for a little bit. But you'll never say, as Christians do, my life, my all, everything I am is yours because of what you did for me. See, if you take out judgment, you've got a sentimental, fluffy God that sends Valentine's Day cards to people. But you don't have the God of the scriptures that says, it cost him to love you. Christianity says, God loved you so much, he had hell to pay for you. Hell doesn't remove the love of God. In fact, hell shows us the awfulness of sin so that we might magnify the love of God as seen in Jesus Christ. He literally said, I will do whatever it takes to have you. I'll have hell to pay if it means I get to have you. That's love. That's not fluff. That's not a card. That's love. And this is the way that God loves you. And when you begin to drink that in, it can actually turn your heart to love God. Let me end by saying this. Think about this. Think deeply on it. We have not thought about this too much. If anything, we have thought through these things too little. Today is the Lord's day. It's the Sabbath day. So one day in seven, God's given you a day to fix your eyes on him. Before you know it, the bustle of Monday morning will come. Before you know it, the busyness of the week will come. So give this day to turn these things over in your mind. You're going to go to lunch. Talk through this with someone. And let your mind begin to think through these realities. I want to end by just asking you to think of two things. One, think of your soul. If hell is true, think of your soul. Ten billion years from now, you will be. Ten billion years from now, you will be. So think of your soul. Is it in sin or has it turned and is in Christ? Sinners, either way, but there's sinners who are in sin and there are sinners who are in Christ. Don't delay. Think of your soul. And if you do know Christ, oh, then what should you be thinking? Should it be gratitude? Should it be humility? What boast do any of us have? This is the eternity we deserve. And if we're not going there, it's solely because of the love of God.
how we should again commit ourselves to the Lord again today and say, this is what you saved me from. So my eternity now is insecure. I can live this life out for you. Think of your soul and ask the Lord to help you think of it. And then hear me, if you're here and you're a Christian, would you think of the soul of another? And I don't know who that is, but would you even now ask the Holy Spirit to bring a face to your mind of someone who does not know Jesus? See your father's face. See your neighbor's face, your co-worker's face, your sibling's face, your cousin's face. See the face. And don't squeeze out from under it. See that face. And you hear what we've said this morning. Ten billion years from now, they will be also. And what should your prayers be if all that we've said this morning is true? And what should your witness be if all that we said this morning is true? How are we going to afford to be cowards when this is what's at stake? Or self-centered when this is what's at stake? Or keep living to accumulate more of our comfort when this is what's at stake. How ought we not pray that God might raise even from among us some who would go to the ends of the earth to tell lost souls that there is a Savior who can bring us to eternal bliss with God. Let's let the weight of this sit on us. Let's pray. Our Lord, we now ask that the Holy Spirit would do work in our hearts. Pray that you would not let us wiggle out from under your word, but sit so that the full force of its weight might come upon us. And we trust, Holy Spirit, you are able to bring application to this word in ways that my words can't. We pray even now for any heart that would sense that the Holy Spirit is actually breaking pride and bowing the knee and turning the eye to Jesus. Even now, let that soul confess, I am in sin. I turn to Christ. Let the self-centered heart see the love of God as sacrificed through Jesus Christ and be moved in response to love God. And take us, O Lord, a people who tend towards comfort and make us bold witnesses for Jesus. Do this and much more than we knew to ask or pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.